What a great privilege and a mercy and a grace from our Lord that he allows us to gather together as his saints and to enjoy the sweet fellowship together and to gather around the incredible gift of his holy word. Would you turn with me in the scripture, in your scriptures today to Genesis chapter 9. The title of today's message in our Genesis series is the second Adam, question mark, the second Adam, and this question refers to the person, the individual, the uh, character in scripture, Noah, who we've been studying of late. In many ways, he shares the experience and aspects of his experience aspects of his character and position and call, his vocation, and even his position within the Word of God that are similar to Adam, leading especially those at the time to ask, is he, perhaps they would ask, is he the Messiah, the one who will hold out hope for our future? Is he, in fact, the second Adam? Well, today we know the answer to that question. If you're a believer in this room, you have spent your morning with us so far worshiping the second Adam. Jesus Christ. But I would ask you this morning to put yourself in the shoes of those who are contemporaries, those who lived at the time when Noah did, and think about the more limited view of God's future purposes and the smaller kernels of His revelation that you had available to you at the time, and what uh, the character and the calling of Noah might hold out by way of sign, expectation, or hope for you. And as we consider those thoughts, we can see answers to this question unfolding in our text today. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to examine the legacy of Noah, pointing us toward Christ Jesus. Today we behold the legacy of Noah, particularly the last chapters of his life today in our text, pointing us toward the legacy of Christ. Would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today, saints, and let us behold these scriptures today in your hearing This is Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. Here we have God's holy word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine... And knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Verse 28, After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The legacy of Adam is revisited in many ways in the account of Noah. Perhaps you noted in the reading of our text today some similarities. As Noah's final days are documented in Genesis 9, 
these similarities are only magnified, may I add, in the positive as well as the negative. This reality introduces a somber tone in the Genesis account. That is to say, no sooner has man inhabited the renewed earth after the flood than the corruption of his nature rears its ugly head. And imagine the situation. Perhaps there was hope held out on the horizon with this starting over scenario. The earth that once was, as the scriptures have told us, has been significantly decimated. Only the seed of the future of people, represented by eight members on the ark, the land creatures in that same vessel, are all that remain of the world that pre-existed Noah's day, Noah's flood. And now after this event has occurred, one would think, finally, a fresh start, a regeneration perhaps, a new era is signaled, a new day has dawned, especially when you hear the covenant uh, promises that God will never send destruction of this sort and magnitude in quite the same way again, and this rainbow is painted across the sky again and again throughout history as a promise to you and to I and to all the lineage of Noah and Noah himself that God will never punish the earth as he did in the great flood in that same way again. So you might think it's a new day. Perhaps this is the new heavens and new earth that we ultimately hold out hope for. However, the narrative takes a turn for the worse as we see that there must be a future Messiah on the horizon because this second Adam, if you will, is proving insufficient in his character and qualifications to satisfy the terms that will truly make life new the way it was and may I add even better than the garden and Adam once enjoyed. So as we see this reality and this somber tone unfolding, we're reminded that the flood, uh, that after the flood, the corruption of man's nature has not been dealt with uh, in any full and final way, but rears its ugly head again. Notice the similarities between Adam and Noah in this way. They both tend a new world garden. They both have received a cultural mandate, a vocational call to be fruitful and multiply and to steward a new earth, if you will. Both have encountered the Word of God, special revelation, in covenantal context. To Adam, he heard the Word of God, and yes, to Noah as well. Both share a federal headship type role. That is, they are representative of the humanity that will follow them in some sense. Uh, Both, yet sadly, have fallen into sin, and we see that in our text today through consumption. One through food, Adam and Eve, who ate of the forbidden fruit, and now Noah through drink by which he became drunk. Both are exposed in their nakedness in this situation of fall into sin. Both witness antithesis in their posterity, that is, hostility and conflict in the seed. Uh, the children, and the generations that will proceed from them. Both receive a covering, however, skins made by God Himself for Adam and Eve, and in the case here, a covering is pictured in a garment draped upon the shoulders of the two sons who honored their father, as we see them in this picture backing up to cover the shame and humility of their dad. And both receive And uh, both the generations are even similar in name and similar in legacy in the case 
of Adam, the Cainites, become enemies of the people of God. In the case of Noah, Canaanites are the cursed line and again become enemies of the people of God. But thanks be to God, there is hope on the horizon still. And this is also reflected in the legacy of both Noah and Adam. In the one case, Seth held out hope for the future. Perhaps a child of Seth will be born. Was it Noah? That's our question today. Well, it wasn't to be the case, but Shem, Noah's son, indeed, yet held out generational hope. Yes, Seth and Shem were the elect children of Noah and Adam. So as we see just a handful or just a sampling of these similarities, they are telling as the reader considers the messianic question. Will this new Adam figure, Noah, prove faithful to the covenant where the first Adam failed? And if not, will there be another who will come one day to fulfill faithfully the covenant terms that will not only justify him or declare him as righteous or show him to be righteous, but in fact hold out some form of hope for those who are now found dead in our trespasses and sins? All mankind shares this Noahic heritage, and as such, the legacy established in these moments that we read of today in earth history are telling markers for the future, indeed for all of humanity. What happens next will signal the trajectory of mankind's future, and therefore, these words in our text today, although they may be mysterious to us in some ways, difficult to understand, they are undoubtedly important. So let's look with the help of the Spirit today, I pray a little more closely to see what might be therein contained under this heading, post-fall conditions echoed in a post-flood world. Let us note in our text today, post-fall conditions, the world after Adam sinned, that are echoed in a post-flood world. And this will include the evidence of sin and also the hope for salvation. This will include declarations of judgment, yet mercy granted by the grace of God. So how does our text speak to these categories? Three ways may I suggest to organize our thoughts today. Number one, we read of a new world garden. The Garden of Eden was the home and habitation of Adam. And then we find here in our text today a vineyard garden, which is the home and habitation, if you will, or at least evidence of the work and toil of Noah. Secondly, we have multi-generational sin. We have similarities in this post, of these uh, post-fall conditions where we see not only the sin of Noah, but sins of his son as well. And then finally, we have future curses, curses pronounced on the sinners and hope that is held out for the faithful, those who trust in God's promises and covenant. New world, multi-generational sin, future curses, and hope. Post-fall conditions echoed in a post-fall world. First of all, note this circumstance that we find the setting, if you will, of our, uh, of our account today, New World Garden, verses 18 through 20. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then this parenthetical note, Ham was the father of Canaan. This is a significant literary device the author, Moses, is signaling something of Ham that will be important to the story as it unfolds, and we see that almost immediately in due course here. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. 
And then we read one more verse. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Post-fall conditions echoed in a post-flood world. First of all, setting the stage here for what is about to occur, we see evidence of fruitfulness and obedience to God's original command. Turn back a page or two, and we have a command that is given, or uh, or, uh, I guess just turn back to the beginning of the chapter, first of all, and we have this command that is given to Noah. The Lord blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the fruitfulness of the human lineage from Noah is evident in his sons, and now we have added to this number at least one grandson. Ham, after all, was the father of Canaan. So setting the stage for future generations, we see that there is an increase, uh, thankfully, in uh, humanity, and this recalls a command and obedience to the same all the way back to Adam and some of the first words that were delivered to him. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, particularly verse 28. Notice the similarity in the language. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see, the calling of Adam and the calling of Noah are very similar. Both were called to be good stewards of God's earth, this new world that was granted to them as an inheritance, if you will. Both of them were put in charge of the animal kingdom. Under Noah, the animals that he brought with them, the land creatures in the ark, under Adam, all the creatures that were there by virtue of God's created act in the six days of creation. Both of them were blessed unto this activity. The favor of God, the direct and special immediate revelation of the Lord is given to them. God has said, bless, He has spoken blessings over them. He has given them, the, He has given both Noah and Adam His blessing and His ability, His call to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And He goes on to detail provisions to this end. So as Noah had received the original command in Genesis 1.28, I'm sorry, Adam, in Genesis 1.28, so Noah enters the new world with his three sons, now a grandson, and the land creatures in tow. Yet his children uh, represent, as his children represent this fruitfulness and blessing, we also have this parenthetical statement. Uh, Ham was the father of Canaan. This, uh, by use of this device, Moses alerts the reader to... Uh, a problem on the horizon, or this origin story, if you will, taking a complicated turn. Things are about to go south in a hurry. Ham was the father of Canaan. Why is that important? Again, the phrase is repeated in verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, the reason that phrase is significant in our context today is because of the curses that will come as a result of Ham's sin. His son, Noah's grandson will be cursed because of this shameful act. Therefore, verse 25 continues, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Nevertheless, we find in this new world garden, this call to be fruitful and evidence of fruitfulness taking place or before us in the multiplication of Noah's family. As we see this 
uh, we additionally find a note that, will, that anticipates events in the next two chapters. Moses writes, verse 19, these were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so from here, our context is indicating formative moments in earth's future. uh, As Noah's sons go, so goes world history. In other words, the table of nations, which which is sometimes called in chapter 10, goes back in its family tree to this a seed family, if you will, in Genesis 9. Genesis 10 then continues to detail the proliferation of the peoples and nations on the earth. And then verse 11 continues, as we'll study in future weeks, the account of Babel. Again, sin rearing its ugly head in the new world. As men gather to uh, uh, gather with hope for their own salvation and safety, not around the promise of the future Messiah, but what they can accomplish and build, and as judgment comes, so the people of God are dispersed. Yes, indeed, all the peoples of all the earth, even today, if 23andMe, you know, that website that traces your genealogy on uh, the internet was precise enough, and if enough information was available, you could trace your lineage all the way back from these people of whom the whole earth was dispersed. So we have fruitfulness and multiplication setting the stage here. And then we have Noah, the gardener. And this, again, is similar to the experience, as we've already noted, of Adam, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. This is significant for several reasons. Why? Well, note vineyard. If you look in the context of greater Scripture, a vineyard symbolizes, it represents something. It's something beyond a mere subsistence you know, uh, survival existence. If you were just trying to survive, you plant the foods that are the most efficient and necessary and will return a crop quickly to keep you alive. But once you have established a foothold, you have plenty to eat, you can then expand your dominion efforts into things that are more of surplus or represent wealth. And a vineyard falls into that category. A vineyard is something tended and planted by someone who has already gained a foothold and has established a, a good farm or a, a good source of food for himself so he can spend his efforts and expanding his dominion call even unto things you don't necessarily need, but when rightly used, are a blessing and a gift. And so here we have Noah in such a place. He began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Noah is successfully at this point taking dominion of the new earth. This is a callback uh, in some sense of fulfillment of a prophecy of him in chapter 5. Turn back with me if you would. Uh, As you turn back there, I have a trivia question for young people in the room. Who was Noah's dad? Does anyone know who Noah's dad was, young people? Who was Noah's father? All right, without looking at your Bible, um, adults, maybe you could help us out. Noah's father, anyone? Lamech. Lamech, if that was your answer, you were correct. Notice in Genesis 5, 28, a prophecy of Noah's father of the significance of his son's call, his role in redemptive history, if you will. Uh, Genesis 5, 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name, kids, Noah, saying, 
out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our works and from the painful toil of our hands. So do you see in this prophecy how Noah's father held out hope that his son would represent an overthrow to some, in some degree or to some sense of the curse? Adam and Eve had been cursed because of their sin. And, the, and as uh, part and parcel of this curse was this uh, decree from the Lord that they would have to toil and labor with thorn cuts and pain and sweat on their brow just to receive the bare necessities from the soil. And they must work hard and, and attend to uh, uh, their subsistence, as we've said. Otherwise, uh, they will surely die in this new or in this barren existence after the fall. But there would come one that is prophesied in 528 who would hold out hope for the future. In other words, man would not be condemned, particularly covenantly faithful men, men who understood and believed that God's promises would come true. Perhaps through Noah, there would come one, perhaps Noah himself, of whom it can be said that he would bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So as we see Noah planting and tending a vineyard, perhaps that prophecy rang in Noah's family's ears from Lamech, his father. No doubt it would have been passed on to them and they could see evidence, yes, something has changed. In this new world, we've moved beyond working just by the sweat of our brow for our next meal. We've moved beyond fear over the next harvest and we've been able to plant this vineyard. Perhaps we have achieved a track record of hope and joy, and perhaps salvation is on the horizon. And so this sets the stage. We have this new world garden. We have fruitfulness. We have multiplication. We have Noah as a gardener. We have the vineyard as symbolic of wealth and surplus rather than mere subsistence. We also have symbolic references through Scripture that draw on this kind of imagery, that is stewardship and cultivation according to the purposes and will of God as God Himself is shown later in the Scriptures to tend His people as a careful gardener does. There's planting language throughout Scripture that speaks to the maturity and vitality of God's covenant purpose. So perhaps this gardener holds out hope for us. Again, the question, is Noah the second Adam? Will he succeed where Adam failed? And then we turn to the next verse. Verse 21. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So you see, with that context, that background, and this hope of those who are present at this time, what a horrible day this was. This wasn't just, you know, a lapse in judgment, a little mistake, or whatever we might characterize our quote-unquote little sins by. This represented the crestfallen or the, the a horrible reality among a crestfallen people that Noah was insufficient to hold out ultimate hope as the second Adam. The man who is called to take dominion over the earth in this sin, it's shown that he has the earth has taken dominion over him. What do I mean by that? The calling of those who would steward the earth is to act on behalf of the Lord as a vicegerent or as a ruler that has a duty, a decree from the Lord that has a delegated role to take care of the earth, now suddenly the earth has power over him. 
This is part and parcel, or this is what's involved with the sinfulness of drunkenness, by the way. God has called you as a representative of Him to take dominion over His creation, to not have His creation take dominion over you. There's a principle here. When you succumb, when your judgment is lapsed, when your faculties are suspended, when you are reduced to your base desires because you're under the influence of a mind-altering substance like drugs or alcohol, you are uh, falling short of the command, the cultural mandate to do a good job in stewarding dominion over the earth. You're not representing Jesus Christ in His lordship over His creation. No, you have fallen prey to creation itself, and you're reduced in your faculties under the dominion, in this case, of alcohol. So in this way, uh, you can see that the nature of this sin was a great fall from importance in, in some sense, and it represented a humiliation, represented a horrible day. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and the next phrase, and lay uncovered in his tent, naked and drunk. We see here, multi-generational sin is echoed in this post-fall world. Post-fall conditions, excuse me, echoed in a post-flood world. After the flood, right away, multi-generational sin rears its ugly head. First, as we've noted, we have Noah's, quote, fall. Now, this speaks, let me just briefly mention, because the young people have studied this recently, this speaks to the honesty of biblical biography. We've talked about this as a mark of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. If we write our history, I often use as an example a painting in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. You may recall this example. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you're in the Capitol building, you look up at the highest point, which is significant, you'll see a fresco, or is that what it's called, a painting by some Italian artist, French artist, or something from back in the day, and it shows the apotheosis, which means to become a god of George Washington. And there's these other Greek gods that represent um, the... Uh, that, that represent the great achievement of America through its figurehead and greatest uh, ruler or greatest leader, Washington, and so forth. And so when someone thinks of George Washington, they tend to, to think of him in mythological terms. That's what it means to be a patriot, after all, to recognize the virtues and the value and the godlike status, the importance of George Washington. That's how we record history. When, if I were to ask you what are some of George Washington's greatest sins, it's hard to answer. But if I were to ask you what was one of Noah's great sins, that's an easy one to answer. Why? Because the Bible is honest in how it records biography. And the Bible does not suffer any glory to be robbed from the one perfect man, the only true second Adam, Jesus Christ. Noah could not hold a candle to Jesus, and that is obviously the case as we see him humiliated in his sin. And his sin is here featured he may not have voted, yeah, go ahead and put this moment, you know, of me drunk and naked in my tent in the Bible, but God would overrule his vote and say, I am featuring this to show that humanity in his sin, apart from a Savior, is depraved and broken, insufficient, humiliated, and is of no, and, and is ill-qualified to be the true second Adam. And so we have the account of Noah's fall, if you will. This notion uh, or uh, this idea is followed, that is this account of Noah's fall and his sin by the sin of the next generation. Notice what we see next. 
Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Uh, Turn with me to Leviticus 18. Again, this verse that we focus upon now, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Uh, We can understand, you know, in our modern context that this is an awkward situation. We can understand that this is a little weird, but can we understand, uh, just on a surface read, what was so wicked about what Ham did? This is where we need the benefit of greater Scripture helps us understand what's going on here. There is a concept in very short and summary form that is expanded on in greater Scripture. As we read portions of the law and other portions, we can get a sense of how wicked this uncovering, if you will, is. This concept is repeated through Scripture and often takes the form of this phrase, uncovering the Father's nakedness. What does it mean, you could ask, to uncover the Father's nakedness? Well, here are some examples in the law. Leviticus 18, beginning in verse 6 and following. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister and your father's daughter, of your mother's daughter, whether your father's daughter or your, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. Now, the law goes on like this with this repeated phrase of uncovering the nakedness. And as you read it in context, you get a sense that this is speaking uh, of several things. One is the, uh, that of sexual sin. So the idea of uncovering one's nakedness is to transgress God's law in the area of His covenant for marriage. Um, There are also other ideas associated with this. We won't go to this uh, text directly this morning, but mark it for future study if you're so inclined. 2 Samuel 16, 21 through 22. Again, 2 Samuel 16, 21 through 22. Absalom gets advice from a counselor on how to demonstrate to the people that he has separated himself and he has declared a coup against his father, the rightfully anointed king, to overtake his throne. What is the most significant, drastic, publicly uh, obvious way to separate myself, to despise, to spit upon the authority of my father's regime and then to take his place? Well, the counsel that he was given is to go and to sleep with, to uncover the nakedness of as many of David's wives as he could, and then to proclaim that publicly. Again, this may seem strange to us, but in this act, Absalom is quite literally uh, doing what the law forbade. He is uncovering the nakedness of his father. He is spitting upon the dignity of his dad. He is dishonoring his father. Young people, Absalom is breaking which commandment? Which of the Ten Commandments is Absalom breaking in this, or several actually, but in dishonoring his father? That's right. He is not, he's failing to honor his father and mother. And just for extra points, name a second commandment that is broken in Absalom's actions. Uh, very good. You shall not commit adultery. 
Excellent. Yes, and so we see in this context uh, more of an idea of what it means to uncover the nakedness of the Father. Final reference, Habakkuk 2. Would you turn to this one just for a biblical context of the significance of Ham's sin and this action? The prophets pick up on this idea as well. Habakkuk is no exception. And as we see uh, two verses back to back, it is helpful for illustrating what's going on here. Always have to run through the song I learned growing up to find Habakkuk, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. See, I found it. Sweet. Minor prophets are sometimes hard to find. Habakkuk 2, 14 and 15. Notice these two verses back to back, if you will. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a positive proclamation. This is a summary of the messianic hope. But notice it is contrasted with a picture, a classic picture of depravity and sin. And that's verse 15, quote, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make, it, make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Again, back to back, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On the other hand, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pours out his wrath and makes them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. In summary, as we behold our text today back in Genesis 9, activity of this sort, activity of the uncovering of the Father's nakedness, if you will, activity that Ham engaged in, is invoked by the prophets, specifically Habakkuk in our example here, as typical of an antichrist culture, uncovering the nakedness of anyone out of scorn or lust. And those are two primary motivators, scorn and lust. In this case, scorn, in our culture, very commonly lust, uncovering the nakedness of another out of scorn or lust is activity that is typical of an anti-Christ culture. This is the principle that is in view here. I, bre- I read an article that expounded on this a little bit. I think it was from gotanswers.org, biblical answers to questions. Just a little snippet for you. I think this is helpful by way of application. And see if this doesn't resonate with your observation of the culture we live in today. The author writes, as our world's morals continue to spiral downward, uncovering nakedness in one way or another has become a favorite pastime. Culture has glorified nakedness and worked to numb our natural modesty by parading nakedness before our eyes. He goes on to lament that even young children's clothing and the pornography industry and many other ways have contributed to this uh, corrupt value in our culture. He goes on, we've lost the concept of honor for one's sexuality, treating the sex drive as just another need to be met, the way we treat hunger and thirst. Uncovering nakedness is no longer a source of shame in a culture that has been trained to expect and applaud it. Ironically, in a world that celebrates the uncovering of nakedness, sexual dysfunction, abuses, and even infertility are skyrocketing. God created the human body, and sexuality is His idea. He therefore knows best how we function He begs us to consider 1 Corinthians 6.13, which says, You say, food for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. 
The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So you see that there is symbolic importance in this act of sin here. This is activity that is part and parcel to a degraded culture. As we've said and the prophets testified to, in an antichrist culture, you can expect the uncovering of one's shame, the humiliation, the disrespect, the dishonor, and these kinds of things that God has placed behind covenant barriers to uh, throw down and in the name of liberation, sexual liberation, and otherwise celebrate that which God has ordained for a specific purpose. What does holiness mean? What does it mean for something to be sacred if not set apart by the authoritative power to do so for a particular purpose? God in His holiness has made certain aspects of human life sacred and has set them apart so that we participate in, in, in them to His glory only when we follow His prescription, His law in that regard. Here we see Ham breaking God's prescription in this case. His un, in so doing, he's uncovering the nakedness of his father. He is desecrating, he's profaning something that God has set apart as sacred in this in this event of multi-generational sin, Noah's fall and uncovering. But notice as we continue that Noah is covered again. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth, and these two are blessed. These become blessed sons of Noah. And we see this blessed action that they took. They took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. In this action, we see Shem and Japheth taking action to cover their father, not to shame him. It's the opposite of what Ham has done. Instead of exposing the humiliation of someone, instead of celebrating that which is meant to be sacred and set apart, uh, Ham took those things and treated them as an occasion for scorn, perhaps mockery, and perhaps worse the Lord only knows. Nevertheless, the principle is evident here. But in contrast to that, his brothers did something laudable. They did something virtuous. They covered their father. In so doing, may I suggest that their actions foreshadow, they picture a covering of sin even in the gospel, as they recall also a covering by a sacrifice in Adam and Eve's sins. And we've been noting the similarities between Noah and Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve sinned, they found themselves naked, ashamed, vulnerable. In the same way, Noah, after he sinned, he was there in his tent, naked, ashamed, and vulnerable. The Lord Himself took it upon Himself through an act of sacrifice, we, we assume, and covered Adam and Eve with skins. These godly sons, learning from God's Word in this regard, took similar action in putting clothing upon themselves, upon their shoulders, and bearing it. Uh, toward their father, backwards so he could not see, and covered their father's shame in this way. Brothers and sisters, this picture is only expounded in beautiful ways throughout the holy word of God. You see, we, you and I, in our sin, are naked, ashamed, and vulnerable, so to speak. But what does the word of God say? Jesus Christ, upon whom, upon his shoulders, was the burden of our covering. Here we have on the shoulders of Shem and Japheth pictured a covering. 
On the shoulders of Jesus, there were bruises, there were stripes, there was blood on his naked, humiliated, and scorned body. But upon his shoulders, as it were, was something else, sufficient covering for your sin and for mine. The Bible goes on to describe this glorious hope of, yes, the true second Adam, and yes, his power not only to maintain his own righteousness, but to grant righteousness to his people. The Bible describes this as beautiful, white, resplendent robes of righteousness that cover all the elect, all who are in Christ, all who are in the second Adam, all who are represented by that covenant head, the true Noah, if you will, the true Adam, as Paul calls him, the second Adam. So in our text today, we begin to see a shift from a broken world uh, marked by generational sin to hope for a future covering. Bringing up our final point today, again, post-fall conditions echoed in a post-flood world. Future curses, future hope. Verses 24 and following, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants,' Shall he be to his brothers? He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And then we have this closing note in the chapter of Noah's legacy, verses 28 and 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And what happened to Noah, kids? He died. 950 years and he died. Future curses, future, future hope. First of all, we have this action taken by Noah, this time, ironically, as an agent of God's will, pronouncing a curse for the disrespect that his son showed to him in exposing his father's nakedness. This is the cursing of the son. This action of curse upon the lineage of Ham speaks of several concepts. One is federal headship, as we've noted. What is, again, federal headship? It's where that which the father or the federal head, uh, his experience is passed on. He's a representative of those who are in him or those who follow him. In this sense, it is just that the children of Ham suffer. In some sense, they bear the consequences of their father's sin. This is a picture of the blood poisoning, if you will, of original sin that affects you and I. Because of the federal headship call of Adam, you and I are born, as the Scriptures say, in sin. But if you think, if you were to cry foul, this is unfair, don't pass judgment too quickly. The reason that you are saved, if you are a believer in this room, is because Christ's righteousness as your federal head is counted as your own. And because He took the wrath that your sin deserved, you, if you are in Him, if you are a son or a daughter of Almighty God through adoption in Jesus Christ, you are justified, pure and holy in the sight of a righteous God. And so we see this here. Ham had received a blessing from the Lord. 9.1, the Lord blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. However, now his son would receive a curse on account of his sin. Ham had received a blessing directly from the Lord, yet despising that grace, that blessing would not be passed on, but would be replaced with a curse in the next generation. As we note in the text, you can do this on your own time, uh, as the peoples um, are seen in Genesis 10, note how many of the descendants 
of Canaan, who is a grandson of Ham, end up being enemies of the people of God. We'll cover that in more detail in future days. But this is evidence of animosity, conflict in the line of Noah, consequence of the curse. And two things we should take from this. Yes, the fear of the Lord. Your actions, fathers in this room, they will affect your family. Your actions, anyone in this room, will affect those who are in the purview, the sphere of your influence. And so the fear of God uh, ought to uh, move us to take this role seriously, but also ought to move us to confess our sins and to be thankful that that which otherwise would pervert our future generations, namely our own sin, its power is broken in Jesus Christ. Praise His holy name. The only way future generations for years and years and centuries won't be ultimately and utterly corrupted because of our sin. That's what happened to Canaan and his legacy hundreds and hundreds, centuries into human history. We see evidence of this moment right here where the father, Ham, uh, took it upon himself to commit this act of disrespect and uncovering his father's nakedness. Nevertheless, there is hope. There is a, a blessing for the elect line. Remember we said that Seth was the elect line of Adam? Well, now the seed, the messianic hope for the future, hope in the lineage of the elect line will continue through Shem. Noah says, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And just a little spoiler alert for you, you'll find in future, uh, you'll find in future documentation in chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah, fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, Haran fathered Lot. These are the generations uh, that proceeded from Shem. And then in 12.1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. In other words, very quickly, in God's providence and mercy and God's record of redemptive history, there are covenant promises made to a descendant of Shem. And the covenant begins to unfold in more salvific beauty, if you will. We begin to see in the legacy of Abraham something that was not as clear evidence in the legacy of Noah or the legacy of Adam. And as the Lord's will and plan unfolds, we see hope on the horizon through the preservation of the messianic line through the seed. Nevertheless, the last words in our text today remind us that death still stings. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Again, the title of our message, was Noah the second Adam? No. The sting of death has not as yet been removed, as it were, at least as it will become fulfilled and evident in the course of redemptive history. Death still struck Noah. Why? Because his sin deserved it. The wages of sin are death. Death was a curse pronounced on Adam's seed unless and until it could be overcome by another. Let us read and let us close this message of the second Adam, if you will, uh, or if you will with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. As we see in the larger context, Noah arises as a glimmer of hope in a pitiful world marked with death and depravity. So he stands out as a jewel, as we've said, along the string of God's redemptive purposes, but he is not the chief diamond. We see that as evidence even in the final words of our text today. In fact, he died. 
Would there be one in the future who would have power even over death itself? Would there be a future son of Seth, son of Shem, who could overcome this last enemy? Yes, indeed. Paul, the apostle, proclaims as much in this glorious chapter. I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Nevertheless, let your heart be ministered to and let your soul sing with this glorious promise fulfilled in Christ. As the apostle writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, as the account of Noah winds down, with his own humiliation and frailty and the dishonor of his son coming to the fore, we see the sting of death yet remains. Though he lives 950 years, a lot longer than most of us, nevertheless, he succumbs to this last and greatest enemy. However, that is not where the story ultimately ends. Noah's death, Noah's legacy begs us to look forward. It points us toward the risen Christ. We sang of Jesus Christ, who rose again today, this morning, in our study for the young people, we covered another idea. The question was, why, was, why did God the Son have to be divine in order for our salvation to be accomplished? And one answer is, only God could raise Himself from the dead. This is the second Adam. He was not a mere man. He was man, and by that, uh, and, and as such, He was the sacrifice that was needful but he was more. He was fully God and fully man. And in that, as we call it in theology, hypostatic union, he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the second Adam. And in him and only in him was death swallowed up in victory. And now we can sing and celebrate with the fullness of revelation before us in the holy word of God that he has accomplished this great work. What is the proof? Our Savior lives. He was resurrected. He ascended. He ever reigns before the right hand of the majesty on high, as Hebrews records. He is there right now in fulfillment of Daniel 7, receiving as an inheritance the kingdoms of this earth. As He has risen, He has come to the Ancient of Days to receive the rewards of His sufferings. Saint in this room, you are a reward of His sufferings. His glorious work in overcoming death is shown forth in the fact that He has regenerated your heart, called you from the depravity and death of your sin this humiliating, shameful circumstance like Noah, and now lifted you up to rule and reign with Christ. Unbeliever in the sound, in the hearing of this message, do not die in drunken, naked humiliation of your own depraved sin. 
Do not lie to yourself that you're better than your neighbor. Do not accept any false self-justification. At the end of the day, I guarantee you are not as righteous of Noah as Noah, and even he, his righteousness was insufficient to cover his own transgressions. I beg of you, place faith in the true second Adam. Today and only in Christ is the day of salvation. This is the message of our text today. The post-fall conditions echoed in a post-flood world hold out hope, and that hope, as we see in the testimony of all of Scripture, is fulfilled in our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us close this service thanking Him in prayer today. Would you bow your head with me? Oh, Father, we thank You that in Your inscrutable wisdom, You have planned since before creation began to unfold Your glory in such manifold ways that it includes You being declared as champion over sin, death, and the grave. We thank you that this was accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who satisfied the terms and conditions of our own salvation, who perfectly fulfilled the covenant that we might be saved, that we might have eternal life. I pray that the revelation that we have examined afresh from your word today, by your Spirit's use of the proclamation of the same, might encourage us to worship you, even in more consistent obedience as we seek to walk in light of these glorious realities. And for the lost who may be in the hearing of these words, I pray that the proclamation of your scripture would drive them to their knees in repentance and faith, realizing the nakedness and shame of their own sin, that they might find themselves in Christ as they confess and believe, clothed in those glorious, pure and white, uh, uh, holy raiment, robes of righteousness that Christ alone supplies. We thank you for the hope in Christ we have in him. We thank you for this the, uh, the grace to gather us to worship His name today. And may you go with each one as we leave this place, even equipping us to proclaim the same to others as you provide the opportunity. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.